this morning's Bible reading is taken from Matthew 4, verses 23, to Matthew 5, verse 12. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. And great, and great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and for theirs is the, uh, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of the Lord. So won't you join me in a word of prayer just before we come to this wonderful passage of scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we have um, and have always had uh, young people in our church who are just passionate for the gospel. And we, we praise you and thank you, Lord, for their gospel zeal, uh, for the fact that they want to be a people on the move. And um, we pray, Lord, that we draw energy from them. And uh, if there's any wisdom that we can give them, Lord, we, we, we pray that we will take that appeal seriously and we will be there for them and walk alongside them. Thank you, Father, that you do save us into a family, and um, a family is multi-generational. We praise you for that, for your wisdom in the way that you've made the church. Uh, we pray that the, the plans that the tribe have uh, are richly blessed in Christ and that you will do something extraordinary in and through them, and in and through us as we love and support them in their work. Uh, Father, as we come to your word now, please will you, will you give us genuine meekness that we might receive it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you will remember from the past two weeks that the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' call to a counterculture, It's his invitation into a new covenant. It's his manifesto for his disciples. It's a vision of what life will look like under his gracious, saving, loving rule. The sermon begins with the Beatitudes because in the first place, the life of a disciple of Jesus is a life of God's blessing. This blessing is cause for enormous happiness. It's a state of happiness. It's the kind of happiness that doesn't blow with the winds of our circumstances. The kind that is anchored in the eternal security of a God who insists 
who absolutely insists, who is determined to show favor to an undeserving people. Jesus tells us what the blessed life really is in the Beatitudes. But before we hear from Jesus, let's hear from Donald Trump. That's not something I would normally recommend, but it'll serve us today. Donald Trump said, show me someone without an ego, and I'll show you a loser. Muhammad Ali said, I'm the greatest. I shook the world. Me. Mulan speaks for all of Disney when she says, believe you can, and then you will. You are braver than you believe, stronger than you seem, smarter than you think. Winnie the Pooh. To infinity and beyond, Buzz Lightyear. Your only limit is your soul, Ratatouille. And then our very own Bonang Mateba has said, focus on yourself, your dreams, your goals, your ambitions. You can achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. That's the prevailing, the prevailing wisdom, isn't it? That's the common sense, all the way from Donald Trump to Bonang. The position is widely held. That's what they say. They. The experts, the influencers. That's what they say. But Jesus Christ says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Again, once again, for the third week in a row, worlds are colliding, kingdoms are in conflict, cultures are at war. The Beatitudes describe a blessed life that could not be further from our world's vision of a blessed life. It's upside down, it's inside out, it's back to front. We've gone from nice guys finished last and the big ego wins To blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It's worth us remembering that Jesus' first disciples were truly at the bottom of their society. Jews were nobodies in the Roman Empire. Galileans were nobodies in the Jewish Empire. And disciples of Jesus were nobodies in the Galilean Empire, because their rabbi was a nobody. In worldly terms, these disciples were to be, at, to be at best despised or ignored. But Jesus gives us a different perspective. He gives them a different perspective. He calls them blessed. His perspective would have been so foreign to them, just like it is to us. I don't know about you, but I find the Beatitudes strange. They're uncomfortable. They knock me off balance. To understand his perspective, to understand this strange state of blessedness, we first need to understand what Jesus meant by meekness. And to do that, we're going to look at meekness from five different angles. We're going to approach it from five different angles. First, the meaning of meekness. And then the measure of meekness. The source of meekness. The blessing of meekness. And finally, the invitation to meekness. The meaning, the measure, the source, the blessing, and the invitation. 
the meaning of meekness. And sometimes it's best to understand a thing by understanding what it is not. Meekness is not a natural feature of temperament, as if certain personalities, personality types get into the kingdom, but others don't. Meekness is not just weakness. We tend to think of the meek person as the pushover, the doormat, uh, the reserved introvert. You know, if you want to knock a meek person down, all you need to do is give them a hard slap with a wet noodle. That is not meekness. And meekness is not niceness. Polite and courteous, mild-mannered, always deferring, deferring always to everyone, everywhere. The kind of person who will avoid conflict at any cost, even the cost of what is right. That is not meekness. And meekness is not something that announces itself with trumpets. Meekness doesn't advertise. The perfect person I could think of, or the best person I could think of, not perfect, certainly, but the best person I could think of to illustrate this is a character from a Charles Dickens novel called Uriah Heep. Um, Uriah is in conversation with the hero of this novel, David Copperfield, and David asks him, I suppose you're quite a great lawyer, I said after looking at him for some time. Me, Master Copperfield, said Uriah. Oh, no. I am a very humble person. I am well aware that I am the humblest person going, said Uriah Heep modestly. My mother is likewise a very humble person. We live in an humble abode, Master Copperfield. My father's former calling was very humble. And then in another conversation, when I was quite a young boy, I got to know what humbleness did, and I took to it. I ate humble pie with an appetite. People like to be above you, says father. Keep yourself down. I'm very humble to the present moment, Master Copperfield. But I've got a little power. And it's that last line that gives him away, doesn't it? His meekness is just a tool. It's just a way to manipulate others to give him what he wants. So some people do it by pushing others down. He does it by pushing himself down so that others feel obliged to lift him up. He's as self-interested as Donald Trump, only his strategy is different. They're both looking for the same thing, an advantage over others. Trump does it by bragging and boasting. He does it by bowing and scraping. An inferiority complex and a superiority complex are mirror images of the same thing. They're both evaluations of the self relative to others. And that is not meekness. Meekness is neither inferior nor superior. Meekness is selfless. It is the gift of self-forgetfulness. It's not just powerlessness although there may be very little power involved. It's not just powerlessness. It's not, a, it's not actually about the amount of power. It's about the direction in which the power is aimed. In meekness, whatever power there is, and again, I say there may be very little power involved, but whatever power there is, is not directed towards self-interest. It is directed towards God 
and others. Even our tire manufacturers recognize that power is nothing without control. Meekness is power under the controlling influence of love. That's meekness. And so meekness is an orientation outside of oneself to God and to others, as I said before. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, The man who is meek is not even sensitive about himself. He's not always watching himself in his own interests. He's not always on the defensive. To be meek means you've finished with yourself altogether. Famous uh, Christian philanthropist George Mueller, he ran a network of orphanages. He describes meekness from his own experience. He says, There was a day when I died, utterly died to George Mueller, his opinions, his preferences, his tastes and will, died to the world and its approval or censure, died to the approval or, or blame even of my brethren and friends. And since then, I have studied only to show myself approved unto God. Our own Bishop Frank Retief, um, in case you didn't know, we are part of a network of churches. We have, uh, we have bishops. Um, Frank Retief was a presiding bishop for many years. He gives us meekness not as a description like Lloyd-Jones or as a testimony like George Mueller. He gives us meekness as a challenge. He writes this, Take the opportunity of restoring broken relationships. Make whatever apologies are necessary. Don't get caught up in the pettiness of who said what and when and who was right or wrong. I've often made the observation that five minutes before I die, it will not matter to me one whit who won the last argument. I will have other things of far greater importance on my mind. Perhaps one of the best ways to understand meekness is to see it lived out, lived out in the lives of ordinary people, ordinary people that we find in the scriptures. We see it in Abraham, who joyfully gave his nephew the pick of the land. You decide, you choose. He gave him the pick of the land, even though as the older man, as the more senior man, in a particularly hierarchical culture, he had every right to assert himself. He said, you take the pick of the land. We see it in Moses who cried out to God for the healing of a woman who had just betrayed him, who had just led a rebellion against him. He cried out to God for her healing. We see it in David who stubbornly refused to dishonor King Saul even though Saul was mad with jealousy and was taking every possible opportunity to kill David. We see it in Stephen, who prays for the forgiveness of those who are stoning him. We see it in Paul, who loves the churches that are trying to throw off his authority. None of these men are powerless, but all of them are meek. Whatever power they had in those moments was controlled by love. It's also worth noting that none of these men were perfect. That's why I called them normal people. They're normal in that sense. In each and every case, whether it's David or Moses or Stephen or Paul, in each and every case, we can point out instances where their meekness failed them. And so it's clear that meekness was 
not just their own natural disposition. As I said before, it's not just a personality type. It's not a question of temperament. Their meekness had another origin, another source. Galatians 5 makes it plain to us what that source is. Galatians 5 reads like this. I'm sure you can recite it and feel free to as I read it. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness. We often read gentleness. It's the same word in the original. It's the word for meekness. Meekness and self-control. True meekness is a gift from God. It's a fruit of His Spirit in your life. We're going to talk about how it comes to us in just a moment, but for now, let's just stop and think about how it is we discern whether we have meekness or not. So the measure of meekness. Am I meek? How would I know? Three quick indicators, three diagnostic tests, if you like. The first one, ask yourself, how do I respond to criticism? When criticism comes your way, you can either be crushed by it or you can get angry and defensive. We need to see that both of those are about the wounded self, the wounded ego. Whether you're angry and defensive or whether you're absolutely crushed and despairing, both of those emerge from a wounded self. So one response implodes into self-pity. The other explodes into attack. But they both emerge from the self. Who does she think she is? You ever responded to criticism like that? I mean, who does she think she is? I'm sure most of us have. Who does she think she is? The flip side of that, what we're actually asking is, doesn't she know who I am? That is not meekness. But neither is the response that curls up into the fetal position and withers. Criticism will hurt. It does hurt. We all know this. It hurts. But it shouldn't devastate. If it does, it just shows an evaluation. It exposes an evaluation of self that is dependent on others and what they think. Deeply dependent on others and what they think. Meekness just isn't all that interested in others and what they think. Not because it has a low view of others. Not at all. Because it's simply not interested in defending the self. The fortress of the self has already been knocked down. So what difference will an invading force make? Meekness will respond to criticism by asking, is it true? And what can I learn from it? Is it true? Is it true? Not does it offend me. Because normally if it's true, well, let me put it this way. If it does offend you, that's normally a clear sign that it's true, right? Not does it offend me, does it embarrass me. Is, is it true? If it isn't true, well, then I can pass by it with thanksgiving to someone who cared enough 
to share. Or with genuine pity for a person who might be overly critical. If it is true, then I can learn and grow in my ability to serve God and serve others, which, of course, is the goal of meekness in the first place. And so I can embrace criticism not because I'm... Well, I can embrace criticism because I'm not trying to defend the self. I can actually embrace it. I'm not trying to defend the self. I'm trying to grow the servant. And therefore, I can embrace criticism. That's meekness. One sure test of meekness is how do I receive criticism? Here's the second test. How do I deal with the failings of others? First test, how do I deal with my own failings or perceived failings from others? Second test, how do I deal with the failings of other people? Now, if you're honest, you might find that you get some sort of perverse pleasure out of the failings of others. It's why gossip magazines sell the way they do. You might find a tabloid culture playing out in your own heart. You like to tell others about how a person failed. You actually enjoy it. You like to tell them. Of course, you tell them very discreetly, of course, and it's just between the two of you. And of course, it's only for the purposes of prayer. But there's a part of you that actually enjoys telling them. That's one kind of enjoyment of the failures of others, this sort of sneaky gossip peddling. Another kind is proud anger. How could they let this happen? I mean, how stupid can you get? What is wrong with these people? You see how this works. Whether it's sly gossip or loud judgment, the end result is a put-down. Why do we want to put others down when they fail? There's an awkward question. On the holiness index... Watching them go down means I go up. I'm not like them. I've got it together. Of course, if any of that is true of you, you left meekness behind a long time ago. Meekness mourns over sin, any sin, but especially my own sin. And of the sins of others, meekness says, There but for the grace of God go I. There but for the grace of God go I. Meekness prays for mercy rather than judgment. Meekness will pray for mercy for others rather than their judgment. And that leads us to our last measure, our last test. How do you relate to those who are not believers? To the lost. It's an important question for us because we, like the first disciples who, who heard that sermon on the mount in person, we will find ourselves increasingly at the bottom. We're not there yet, but increasingly that's where we're going to find ourselves. Christians will be marginalized. Christians will be outsiders. We won't have access to the corridors of power. We are not going to be mainstream cultural influences. No one cares. In the eyes of the world, we will be nobodies. 
to be ignored and pitied at best, but as I say increasingly, to be managed and educated and even persecuted. That's increasingly how the world will view the church. How do we view the world? Is it us and them? Do we look down on them for their sinful ways? Are we tempted to fight fire with fire? That's not meekness. Meekness is always concerned for the other, regardless of who the other might be. Always concerned for the other. For meekness, people are not the enemy. People are the goal. So there are three diagnostic tests. How do you respond to criticism? How do you respond to the failings of others? And how do you relate to the lost? Three ways of testing your own heart. I don't know about you, but for me, those are very uncomfortable questions to ask. They, over this past week, they have exposed a heart that desperately needs to grow in meekness. They show me just how often I'm turning my back on God's blessing in this area. And I don't want to do that. I want meekness. If you're like me, we have this question to ask ourselves, or this string of questions. If we want meekness, but we don't have it. We want it, but we don't have it. How do we get it? Thirdly, the source of meekness. Jesus Christ is not just another biblical example of meekness. He's not just that. He is the source of all meekness. Here is the Lord of glory who volunteered for birth in a kennel. Here is the master of the universe who volunteers for a working class family. Here is God the Son who volunteers for the ministry of a nomad, for opposition, for hatred, for abandonment, for betrayal. Here is the divine king who volunteers for the death of a rebel slave. Here is sinless perfection who volunteers for the righteous anger of God. And remember, he volunteers. In all of this, no one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. That's meekness. He had the fellowship of the Father, but he chose to be a friend to sinners. That's meekness. Almighty power. Almighty power under the perfect control of endless love. That's meekness. That same power exercised in love is what remakes the self in me and in you. In Christ, I am now utterly secure in God's love. Utterly secure. My worth isn't an evaluation of self over and against others, relative to others. 
My worth is defined by God's love for me in Christ Jesus. And not only his love for me, but that same love for others. And so I have a tremendous sense of self-worth. So inferiority is impossible. But that self-worth is a gift from God. So superiority is also impossible. Where once I was trapped in the prison of self, now I walk in the wide open plains of love. The self is static and inward. Love is dynamic and outward. Love is the opposite of the self. The polar opposite of the self is love. God's love for me in Christ runs in, overflows, and then runs out again to love for him and love for others. But that love could only ever come to us in and through the meekness of Christ. Do you see that? It comes in no other way. He is the source of our meekness. He is the source of our blessing. And we are blessed indeed. Let's think about that blessing, the blessing of meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. One day we will be kings and queens over a new creation. That is the explicit promise of the gospel. We are going to rule and reign with Christ over a new universe, a new heavens and a new earth. That promise is only for those who recognize that they lay no claim on God. He lays a claim on us. We have no rights, no entitlements, nothing to assert. We can only appeal to his mercy and to his love. In other words, that promise, we will reign and rule with Christ over a new creation. That promise, they shall inherit the earth. That promise is for the meek. Knowing we are loved, knowing that love is a gift and not a right, if you are in that state, you may be on the bottom now, but you will inherit the earth. There's even more. That future blessing reaches back into the present. If you know that you stand to inherit everything, so just think about this now for a moment because we can rush past it. If you know that you stand to inherit everything, that everything is yours, absolutely guaranteed, a promise underwritten by God himself. If you know that for certain, then what can you possibly lose? If you know that in, that in Christ all things are yours, a promise underwritten by God himself, well then you can risk all things. And you can forego all things. And you can endure all things. Because in the end it will be yours. Because in the end you inherit the earth. Once you and I were what George Bernard Shaw calls a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances 
complaining that the world will not devote itself to making us happy. But now, in Christ, we have died to all of that. And we have risen again in meekness. Which means you demand nothing. You claim nothing. But you are given everything. Including true happiness. This is the upside down kingdom of heaven. And it comes with real blessings in the here and now. It comes with genuine contentment that doesn't depend on my circumstances. It comes with a security that isn't indexed to the opinions of others. Meekness looks like weakness on the surface, but it is the greatest strength in the world. The most confident people you will meet will be meek people. Why? Because their confidence is not in themselves. Their confidence is in the Lord. I hope you see that this is a truly blessed state of being. I mean, imagine it. No more preening and posturing for the sake of others to win their opinions. No more endless struggle to defend your rights or your reputation. No more relentless need to put others down through gossip or angry judgment. No more. Just the freedom of a life lived for God and for others. True peace. True rest. I hope you want that for yourself. You can have it. That is what's on offer. Finally, the invitation to meekness, and it's an invitation that the king himself makes. And with this invitation, we'll close. Listen to the invitation of the king. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let's pray. Father, thank you for showing us the blessing of meekness. Father, thank you for reminding us that we may be on the bottom in this world, but in the reality of the kingdom, we stand to inherit everything. Father, if we're honest, we see so much room to grow in meekness. And so we thank you that it comes to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we are yoked to him, as we follow him, as we fix our eyes upon him, help us to see all that he is and all that he's done to free us from ourselves. As we experience his meekness, help us to grow in meekness. Make us into a people who are truly meek. And Father, if, if there are any here this morning who are hearing your call to this blessed life, Please help them by your spirit to respond. Help them to accept the invitation of our Lord Jesus Christ and to finally find rest for their souls. It's only ever in his name that we can pray. Amen.